Hello, welcome to the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I am your host, Rebecca Millsoff, senior editor at Billboard and Broadway fan here. So when I first heard that there was a new play of A Clockwork Orange coming uh, to Off-Broadway in which music would play a big role, I was a little skeptical. I guess I imagined that music being involved in a big way must mean it was a musical. And the story of A Clockwork Orange, if you know it, well, it doesn't quite sound like typical musical fare. The story was famously made into a now iconic movie by Stanley Kubrick, but it is based on a 1962 dystopian novel by Anthony Burgess about a violent teenager named Alex and his gang of friends and the efforts of the government to reform them. That's sort of an overly reductive synopsis, but it'll have to do for now. Uh, The quote-unquote ultraviolence, as Burgess writes it, that Alex and his gang, who he calls his droogs, uh, engage in is quite visceral and shocking, and it's not exactly the material of song and dance. So it made sense when I ultimately learned that this new stage adaptation, which is based on the Burgess book, not on the Kubrick movie, is really a straight play with significant segments that are set to music, including rock bands like Placebo, David Bowie, Muse, and Gossip. There's also original music by Glenn Gregory, the frontman of the band Heaven 17. And anyone familiar with both the book and the movie won't be surprised to hear that Beethoven's Ninth Symphony also figures into things. The show has already played in London to plenty of acclaim, and it sounds like it should be a pretty intense experience that could redefine what comes to mind when we hear the phrase musical theater. Uh, The three key members of the team who came to the podcast recently certainly represent very different backgrounds where theater is concerned. Uh, Director Alexandra Spencer-Jones leads the innovative British theater company Action to the Word. John O'Davies, who plays Alex, has done a great deal of TV work in the UK. He appeared in Shakespeare in Love on the West End. And Matt Doyle, who plays one of Alex's droogs, is, uh, an, I would say, an up-and-coming musical theater star here. He most recently played Anthony in the immersive off-Broadway production of Sweeney Todd. So those three came by, and we chatted about what makes this show so unusual, what makes Burgess's story so timely now ahead of the show's off-Broadway opening. Well, to start off, why don't you all tell me who you are? Who are you people sitting in the room? <laughs> yeah. uh, hi, I'm Alexandra Spencer-Jones. I'm directing A Clockwork Orange. I'm Jono Davis, and I'm playing Alexander Delarge. And I'm Matt Doyle. I'm Georgie, and I'm, I'm with the rest of the ensemble. And you're the one non-British person here. I am, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just putting on an American accent right now. <laughs> that would be well. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're good at being American. Um, well, I, I'm a longtime fan of the book. It's one of my favorite books. Um, and I remember when I saw the movie, it almost seemed sacrilegious at first because I was <laughs> so attached to the book. Um, but, you know... It's obvious to me that music is such a huge part of the movie, but the idea of making a Clockwork Orange musical is maybe not as obvious. Uh, So how did the idea kind of come to you to make this production happen in the first place? Well, interestingly, I mean, our production isn't a musical by any stretch, but when Anthony um, Burgess made the decision to write the play version 
because um, it is his text. He was also a composer, and so he integrated songs into the original. Um, mm -hmm. And when I came to make the show in 2009, I decided that they didn't really tell the story I wanted to tell. And so I was then given the gauntlet, as the book does, um, to choose out a set of music for the show that would justify that huge obsession with music that is prevalent in the book. Mm -hmm. And so I was selecting um, artists that for me represented liberation and freedom. Uh, at the time, it was the Eurythmics, Scissor Sisters, Placebo, uh, crucially David Bowie, you know, individuals, ha people that rest in what Alex in the book calls the height of fashion, but also shape shift and change. Um, you know, Alex is obsessed in the novel with classical music, but in the production, we extend that because we look at the world through his eyes. And so that um, that translates into pop music, rock music, and crucially, Beethoven as well. Mm -hmm. So do you think of it more as a play with music? I certainly do, yeah. yeah. It's a movement-enthused uh, physical theatre mixed with Shakespeare thing. Um, it, it, I don't think it's the, the type of thing we've done has really ever been done before. It's an integration piece, really. It sounds crazy. Yeah, I don't know what an integration piece is, yeah. Um, I mean, the fact that there had been such iconic music use in the movie, was that like hard to kind of try to think to follow up? Did you want to veer in a very different direction? Mm. Or did, was it just like a good starting place for you? I think that's a really lovely question, actually, because I... The film for me isn't sacrilegious. It's sort of a masterpiece. Um, no, that having been it is, said, it's a very that, good movie. That, that just my having been that. said, you know, for me, um, the music and the sound of the film is it's it's a particularly famous and strange twist on Beethoven, Rossini. You know, um, Wendy Carlos was writing this most incredible sort of sound, really. Um, and so my decision to move entirely away from that. Um, was rooted in my decision to move entirely away from everything that Kubrick does and to serve the novel entirely. Mm -hmm. Ours is very much a retelling of Burgess, yeah. Very cool. So what for the two of you, what was your experience with the book or the movie coming into this? Um, so I hadn't read the book or seen the film before I was cast, um, and I purposely didn't, read, uh, didn't watch the film until much later on. Uh, once I'd found my foundation of my version of Alex Delage, because I didn't want Malcolm McDowell's kind of interpretation to impress itself upon me. Um, and only so only later, once I kind of felt like I had my um, root in the character, that I watch it. And um, yeah, I've, I, I find the humour in the film uh, quite wild and wacky, and that is a lot of fun. I think that's what I took mostly out of it. But the book is what's in my head, certainly, when we're doing the piece. I mean, the first 20 pages, I don't know, were like, oh, crazy. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you're just getting obliterated with all these NADSAT words. And you're like, I don't know if I'm able to yeah. carry on with this because mm -hmm. this is tough. Like, usually, you know, what's 20 pages in a book is nothing, whereas that is an actual, like, effort. Yeah. <laughs> but then, and that's the glory in the writing, you know, you suddenly start to switch on to a few words which makes you learn a few more and then you get the rhythm and then you're like fluent by the end of the book and you're part of the gang you're part of the droogs and that's what our play does as well it invites you in it allows you to be part of alex's droogdom and that's what's <laughs> really kind of uh appealing because you're there like i want to be his friend he's cool okay. <laughs> i remember after reading it that it's very hard to like think in normal language again like yeah. you find your i found myself kind of thinking in his very odd parlance mm. yeah i mean you hear it in rehearsals like 
the new cast already of <laughs> trying yeah try, try like take it on. <laughs> yeah exactly but it will soon really become second nature mm-hmm. i mean i mean alex speaks in it all the time and, it, and it's the speech pattern that comes with it not just the words it's the way that he forms sentences together mm-hmm. which is fun completely yeah. and then what about you matt yeah my first experience with it was in high school um it, i grew up in northern california and that was a required reading in my senior year which is a little strange for a high school i guess um, Very cool, though. Yeah, yeah. Liberal. Uh, <laughs> and, had a much uh, more exciting high school uh, English program than I did. Right. <laughs> and so they kind of they pushed it upon me, and I remember not being able to get through the first twenty pages. So I was like, "Well, I'll watch the film," as any <laughs> horrible student does. And uh, I tried to sit through the movie, and I got to singing in the rain and the the rape scene, and I was so so thoroughly disturbed by it. I uh, I pushed back through the book <laughs> so that I could pass all of my exams and everything. And I was really really um, swept up by the book and and really moved by the novel. And returned to the film probably just like maybe three years ago and was able to sit through it and, and realize what a masterpiece it is and, and have a different and much older and, and lived eye on it that could actually, you know, watch those sequences and, and understand them. I should probably revisit it decades later. Yeah, <laughs> it's dated really well. Yeah. Like, I suppose as a modern audience now, it's not as shocking because we've grown to other things, you know, TV series or whatever. That mm-hmm. it's like, I mean, it's still a fantastic film, but it's... Yeah, it's a piece of art, I think, when yeah. you watch it now. It's mm-hmm. really got a, a time capsule to it. Yeah, totally. So I'm, I always find audition stories interesting, and for this, for these roles in particular, I mean, there's so much, like you were saying, there's, oh, it's tempting to just think of him as evil, mm-hmm. but the whole point of the story is that there's a lot more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did you two have to do, and how did you approach playing these guys? Yours is more recent. Oh, yeah, Yours is my forefront of your memory. <laughs> recent memory. Um, yeah, when I first, I didn't even uh, take a look. They sent the script, but I didn't even take a look at it um, really until about the night before that I went in because the sides were really short, and all I saw was A Clockwork Orange, and I just thought, Moo, I would, I would love to be involved in any way, shape, or form. And I saw Georgie's name, and I knew that, you know, who he was and one of the droogs, and I thought, yeah, that'd be so, so wonderful and so interesting. And it was a so not a New York audition process <laughs> at all. Not even What remotely. do you inflict upon these people? <laughs> First of all, she asks for a, uh, a Shakespeare monologue, which is very common in the UK. Um, very common thing to do. Here, no one has one in their book prepared at all. Luckily, I was fine. I, I went to school for classical theater, so I got it, got it together last minute. But um, yeah, put the sides together and went in. And a couple auditions later, I was at a 10 to 6 call. That was a workout call and a movement call and, you know, theater games and improv games. And I walked out of there and just made a quick call to my agent and my manager and I said whatever they want me to do in it if they have me I'm doing it oh. what a warm fuzzy story Here about a clockwork orange so what were you so why the Shakespearean monologue and what were you looking to see well the theatre company my theatre company in the uh, UK that created the show uh, very much is rooted in Shakespeare to the point where it's named after Hamlet's advice to the players, action to the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a 
requirement of the audition process of that company is a Shakespearean monologue, regardless of whether we're making a musical or, you know, um, certainly it's where my sort of passion is academically and theatrically. Um, and, I, and you can tell a lot by what Shakespeare um, people work with and what, what character they choose to bring into a room and how original that is, you know. Um, but also the rest of the process, Clockwork Orange, between the 10 actors in our production here and nine actors on stage, they have to play between them 47 parts. Um, they have to be shapeshifters, not actors, chimeras, you know, chameleons. Um, and so theatre games are a requirement because mm-hmm. I need people that aren't afraid and I need people that aren't um, intimidated by what might be deemed silly sometimes. And and really it splits the men from the boys because not only do we need to test their personal fitness, really for the stamina of the show, you know, but also <clears throat> their aptitude to rhythm, um, counts, retention of choreography, their, their ability to play is what I need from an audition. And so, yeah, it was a great time we had. We did it very quickly here. It was a very quick audition process, quicker than we would at home. (laughs) But um, we worked with an amazing casting director who saw so many men for the roles. Um, A huge open call um, and weaned it down for us to some really brilliant artists. And, you know, we've been blessed, really. Our cast's phenomenal and they're they're the cast we wanted. You know? And John playing Alex, was this something you immediately were like, yes, count me in, or did you have reservations? Oh, no, I mean, t- as soon as the audition came through, it was clearly something that I wanted to do. In fact, I'd heard of the play the year before, perhaps a year and a half before. Uh, it was in Edinburgh Festival, and I was up there doing a show with my drama school, and I'd heard these amazing rave reviews for reaction to the words of Clockwork Orange, and it was sold out, so I couldn't go, and I was mm-hmm. gutted. Um, and then the audition came through to play the lead, and I got it. So it was like, oh, okay, here we are. <laughs> this is a guess I'll get to this see is it. a nice turn of events. Yeah, yeah. We, we played the show at the Edinburgh Festival uh, mm-hmm. in 2011 and 2012, and then it transferred into Soho Theatre in the West End. And so, having done a UK tour, a, uh, an Australian tour, we then had the opportunity to take the show over to Asia, and it was just at that point that my second Alex. Um, was unavailable and that's how I found Jono because we were we went to Norway with the show quite randomly um, and uh, Jono and I sort of artistically collided and it's I mean what our fourth project together now fourth you know yeah um, this is we've 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 created other work in the UK together and it's it's strange in the play there's a quote it says uh, everything works out funny the way it does it's just strange how things fall and mm-hmm. people land and art sort mm-hmm. of expands and shoots off and creates other art and yeah yeah, it was the best thing that that could have happened at the time really and the role was just so you know it's so enticing because you have you do have that kind of Shakespeare-esque language Mm -hmm. but also the melody that goes in with the language as well it's a very musical piece in just the text never mind the music itself totally Um, even the way it's structured you know you have legato and staccato it's sharp and then it smooths out and yeah and to then go into the psyche and the morality of the piece as well. There's just so many avenues to explore as an actor. And it was probably the first thing that I'd ever been cast in where I really cared about actually what we were trying to portray and what story we were trying to tell and what reaction we were trying to provoke in who came to see it. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, here we are three and a half years later, still finding things, Mm. still finding reasons as to why we do the show. What are audience reactions like? Because, I mean, there's a lot of 
as Matt said, there's a lot of really disturbing stuff in, mm -hmm. in the story that's mm -hmm. um, intrinsic to it. They're incredibly diverse in terms of people. People bring their own history to it, mm -hmm. their own background. Uh, some, you know, a huge portion of our audience have never seen the film or read the book, and we're giving them their first taste of the Burgess, you know, story. Some people are appalled. Some people learn. Some people find empathy. Some people detest him. I mean, it's amazing how it splits our audience. Mm -hmm. And quite fascinating. I mean, without exception, what it does do is put you in his shoes. Mm. Whether that's a horrifying place for you to be or a revealing place for you to be, that's individual, I think. Yeah. It's quite a sparking reaction, though. We had a guy from Russia come in in the London run, and about 10 minutes in, he was demanding his money back. <laughs> He's like, this is so violent. And, well, it's a clockwork orange, mate. Like, uh, yeah. it's kind of. It's not Disney. No. <laughs> but also, you know, the flip side of that is that, strangely, there is, there is an audience, a student audience for the show as well, that relate to the disaffected youth element of the piece. Mm -hmm. There's a, a whole love of movement audience mm. and dance, a dance audience that admires the sort of physical theatre side of the storytelling. A Shakespearean audience that loves the verse. Uh, it's so it's so diverse and wide. It really is. It shocks me how diverse and wide it is. I mean, it was taken to Norway on a government scheme to be a kind of symbol of rebellion, and it's okay to rebel and it's okay mm -hmm. to have a voice. And it was it played Singapore as a liberation piece. You know, Jono and I were invited to speak at an, a huge LGBT conference oh, wow. about, about the fact that censorship had just been lifted on the piece six years before um, and that, that the spokesperson um, for the conference said that really what we were doing and we were promised armed guards because they were predicting riots with our production um, was the most liberating piece of theatre that had, had landed on their shores you know that was flattering I mean as it happened the Singapore audience embraced it academically you know but it's so interesting how it ebbs and shifts and changes well, it's, I mean, it seems like it's a story that, you know, in the 70s seemed like this crazy dystopia, but it just seems so sort of frighteningly timely now for so many reasons. But I'm curious how you all see it, like, relating to the world we're in now, because so much of it is about, you know, what's considered normal in a society and how society deals with, you mm -hmm. know, so-called aberrations. It's a really interesting question again. You know, um, in 2011 which feels like a million years ago, but just wasn't. There were huge riots in London. Um, and there's text in the show where the doctor who is conditioning Alex uh, to be good clinically is displaying images of riots in London to him in a film. <laughs> and our audience nervously laughed because they thought that we'd written it that morning. Oh, wow. And I, I, I mean, it's ever pressing and ever relevant, the novel. Um, and particularly given our current climate and not just over here where we're where we're where we're from as well you know we're in the midst of brexit and what feels like youth really not being listened to but i have to say that when my father was reading it there were huge riots in liverpool when he was a teenager <laughs> and throughout the 80s there was a disaffected youth in in great britain the punk movement you know uh what i'm saying is as um anthony burgess's genius for me transcends time politically that having been said stuff sticks out all the time depending on where you are and what political situation you know you're resting in at that moment and you can see alex in so many world political leaders through time you know yeah 
Mm-hmm. So, it's, as you said, you know, it's a, it's a testament of the true genius of his work. You know, just like any modern classic or classic that we have now. You know, the Beatles or I don't know, Da Vinci. I don't know. It's it's still there. Yeah. As ever relevant. Transcends time, really. It was amazing. Our first week, uh, Charlottesville. Our first week of rehearsals, Charlottesville was happening. Oh wow! And um, I just remember thinking, you know, I because of the work that I'm doing during the day, even though I'm angry and even though I, you know, feel a lot of uh, uh, just uh, disdain towards the people that were at that rally, I had to take a step back and understand them on a more human level and try, try to understand them, maybe more than just shutting them out with my, you know, liberal upbringing of, how could anyone think like that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's a on the flip side that's a really amazing thing that this piece is yeah. it has to offer understanding these people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um going back to the music for a moment uh do you do you all think of the music that's used as kind of telling its own narrative in a way and i would love to hear a little bit about some of the specific songs that we'll hear and sort of the moments that they go with yeah, I mean, the on paper, there's only 18 pages of text. <laughs> Whoa. I'd say 45% of the show is music. Um, I love the bits of the book that aren't in the play. And I did my best to tell the story of the journeys between the scenes with physical sequencing. Um, and as I said, I chose out music from Liberators, really. And that's ebbed and shifted through time as well. It was a long selection process of that music. And for, for the New York production, there's even some original music being written um, okay. for the new sequences, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it serves a really important purpose. Because, and people come away talking about the soundtrack of the show all the time. Um, because like Alex, the show, which, as I said, sits inside his head and drives you forward. Uh, music transcends language for him. Music is how he, he... Everything has an underscore for him. Everything's scored. And so the, the play, the necessity in the play is that stories and feelings are expressed with music. Mm-hmm. And in terms of specific songs, I mean, um, my a big hero in my life is Bowie. We use his music to tell the story of Alex's homecoming. He leaves jail and the treatment centre to come back to Salford in Manchester and walk through the streets um, only to find that it was almost better in jail. You know, a a dreadfully sad, heavy storytelling mechanism. Placebo's battle for the sun, this amazing sort of anthem, I guess, that tells his descent into jail and all the awful process of going from being the alpha male in his life into... This beaten number, 6655321, his tug, you know. Yeah, and there's Beethoven in there. Mm-hmm. We, <laughs> um, we use this amazing new sequence by Glenn Gregory for our dream. Glenn Gregory um, was in the band Heaven 17, you know. Brilliant new sort of Hindi music infused sort of dubstep thing you know phenomenal uh, the music of the show is one of my primary um, excitements really and for us as as actors it's the foundation of our um, our rehearsal process really we start with you know they're called transitions but they're not they're not transitions no it's uh, 
well, it's musical storytelling. It's yeah. physical storytelling, Absolutely. isn't it? Which the, the music totally encourages. I mean, I when I said yes to the project and was lucky lucky enough to be involved I still really didn't know what I was doing because like Alex said uh, there was about 18 pages of text and I was like well says I do something in that transition so we'll see and uh, yeah so I've just been discovering it along the way and everything is informed by by the music and the movement and uh, that's where that's where the storytelling takes place mm-hmm. and you know we have to treat it as text we have to treat you know mm-hmm. just like you'd get a line wrong or intonation on a line. You have to do that with the music, with the movement that coincides with that, you yeah. know, and the rhythms, the beats, everything really have to kind of really respect it for what it is because only with that will we really tell the story, you know. What really stands out to the two of you among the musical moments or are there songs you had heard before that now in the context they're used, you're hearing them in a different way? For me, Standing in the Way of Control by The Gossip, um, I know ASJ used that back in 2009, mm-hmm. was it? As a symbol of the kind of youthful generation. I think back then it was this kind of anthem for teenagers and like hedonism in adolescence and stuff. And although we're, you know, 10 years on almost from that, that still pumps through my mind, like of my teenage years when I hear that music and like me going out like underage, like a bit of underage drinking and like, <laughs> like and, and so I totally get that when it comes on and because it's got such a sudden start to it, such a sudden intro that, uh, you know, you blast it around these massive speakers around a theatre, it's got such a anthemic and kind of battle cry vibe to it that really, it's what in our story is what propels Alex into his major crime, you know, into his, the latter stages of his criminality. It's almost like a protest song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's one for me. Yeah. I, I think, uh, David Bowie, I, I, I'm, I'll never be able to hear him the same way again now because he's <laughs> a voice I'm hearing every day in such, such a different context with, with such colorful characters. And I, that's been a really fascinating thing is the stories that Alex has pulled out of one song, one phrase. So like uh, 10 characters appearing in, in in five words that she's been able to develop <laughs> a little story around. It's un, it's it's amazing. And I'll never be able to hear that song again because I've got a three act play in that one song now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, amazing. I like. I can't wait to see this all in action. Um, I mean, Matt, it's hard for me not to think that this is funny coming for you as it does after Sweeney Todd. Oh, There's yeah. like, it's going from dark to darker. Yeah, well, absolutely. And also, because re- Anthony is not dark. He is like as vanilla as it gets. And I've been trying to color in a very, very like a lover from a melodrama. And um, so I was thrilled to to be able to jump into this and just not, and be told we don't really know what you're playing yet and it could be anything and, and, and go for it because, you know, I've, I've done a lot of, um, romantic, (laughs) wonderful, sweet boys over the years. And, uh, it's nice to dig a little bit deeper. Mm. We have romance. I know. (laughs) What about our romance? romance? (laughs) That character is a total psychopath. Yes. Um, just to be clear, he's a total psychopath. He's a psychopath, and he's um, he's immensely homophobic, and he is gay himself, and he's self-loathing, and um, and terrified of who he is, and acts out in anger as a result of it. And um, yeah, it was uh, 
it's not something I, I've really explored um, on stage before. <laughs> and you're like on stage, or in yeah, or or in well, you know, I, I it is something that I am able to I think tap into personally, and you know. ASJ, Alex, our, our wonderful director, brings up um, our dark passengers all the time, and, and that's the the darkest side of you that you carry with you, um, especially with these characters. And I think that uh, digging into that as a human is important every now and then to, to resolve things and to to make, make sense of things and understand the world better. Mm-hmm. Well, who would have thought Clockwork Orange could be a therapeutic experience right. for everyone involved? <laughs> exactly. I think what we come away with is a Clockwork Orange, there's something for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. There you go. Well, thank you all of you for coming in. This was great to chat. My I can't pleasure. wait to see it. Thank you. I'm a little scared, but also yeah. excited. <laughs> I'm so excited and so scared. <laughs> cool. A Clockwork Orange opens at New World Stages on September 25th, and it'll run there for 16 weeks. If you're a fan of the Billboard on Broadway podcast, as always, I would ask you to subscribe to give us stars and nice reviews on iTunes. You can always find me on Twitter at Rebecca Millsoff. If you'd like to tweet about the podcast, use hashtag Billboard on Broadway and hope to have you here again next week. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.